Are we live? Can you hear me all right? Okay. Good morning, everyone. We're here today to do a panel, the first of two panels at the TV of tomorrow. About maybe we, maybe we can close those doors and have a little more intimacy. I don't know. If, actually, if we can have any more intimacy here, then it's going to be a different type of panel. Um, thank you. Um, the we're we're going to talk a little bit this morning about big data and what the implications of big data are for television, what actually is happening with big data on television, um, some of the stories that people have, and then pose some hopefully tricky questions for these panelists. And we have a spectacular panel. Some people I know, some people I don't know. So I'm just going to introduce everyone quickly, but in the course of the questions, you'll get to know who they are. So at, to uh, the, the furthest left, we have Paul Haddad from Cablevision, and I call him their Cablevision's, Cablevision Media Sales Big Data Guy. He, he has a better, more official title, but I, he's the guy who's involved in trying to figure out the patterns and prediction and pricing and all of those things. We have Pre Professor David Schwedel from Emory, who is uh, one of the world's experts on interpreting marketing data. We have Michael Ish, who's going to be the heart and soul. Ishorn, sorry, Ishorn from Ish. Hershorn from Ish Entertainment who um, is going to be the, the heart and soul of our panel. Um, we have George Shabab, who everyone, does anyone here not know George? I guess not. Um, uh, from, from Cantor, we have Bill Feiniger from Fourth Wall and Ashley Swartz from, tell me again the name of your, Furious Minds. I know you by your Twitter, what is your Twitter title? Like Red Fury, that's the, so hopefully we'll get a little Red Fury today. So the way I usually do these things is we have about five rounds of topics. And the first topic we're going to talk about is what exactly is big data and what exactly is big data for television. And uh, earlier this year, in February of this year, the New York Times had a story. It was sort of an etymological investigation about the origin of the term uh, big data. And, and they heralded a sort of series of investigations that a variety of different people had finding out what the origin of the term big data is. And um, there was a quote that was the first instance that anyone could find about big data, which was an article in Harper's by Eric Larson. Eric Larson is the author of Garden of the Beasts and White City. And he concluded with, a, with an article, with a, with a quotation that I have is here. The keepers of big data say they do it for the consumer's benefit. But data have a way of being used for purposes other than originally intended. That's a pretty prescient, uh, pretty prescient quote. There's an uh, academic named Francis Diebold who actually authored a paper. He claimed to be the inventor of the term big data. And when people said, oh, you weren't, he actually authored a paper about this called The Personal Perspective on the Origin and Development of Big Data. And he, he claims that the phrase sort of first takes hold at Silicon Graphics um, a company in the you know, 1980s, 1990s, very famous for processing a lot of data, especially uh, visual data. And he actually found an ad for the term big data in Black Enterprise Magazine, which the Delta Shuttle used to give out for free for anyone who took that, that trip. And he says, skeptics will argue that traditional disciplines like computer science, statistics, X metrics are perfectly capable of confronting the new phenomena so that big data as a discipline is redundant merely drawing a box around some traditional disciplines. But it's hard not to notice that the whole emerging big data discipline seems greater than the sum of its parts. That is, by drawing on perspectives from a variety of traditional disciplines, big data as a discipline is not merely talking to us bigger, taking us to bigger traditional places. Rather, it's taking us to wildly new places, unimaginable only a short time ago, ranging from cloud computing and associative massively parallel algorithms to methods to controlling false discovery rates when testing millions of hypotheses, which much in between. So Bill, I'm going to start with you. Fourth wall is integral to collect all of this data. And you probably collect as much television set-top box data as, as any company in the world. Has that big data, that phenomena that, that Diebold is talking about, is that here in television? So for, for us, we're collecting data from somewhere north of about seven million households today. Not all of which we, we uh, license ourselves, but we collect on behalf of others as well. 
So we collect a lot of data. So yeah, big data in that respect is here today because there's a lot more of it that's, in, that's ever been collected before. I think you'll continue to see that grow over time. And I, but I think that the big data uses go beyond that with how you integrate that with other data sets, how you create new kinds of metrics and analytics out of it. How do you find consumers by, but, so this becomes one component of, it just becomes one component of a, solving a larger problem. Paul, your, your role at Cablevision Media Cells, it's a, it's a new role. I mean, it was, it, it didn't exist before you came along. And I sort of, as I jokingly call the, you're the Cablevision Media Cells big data guy. What is, what is those responsibilities? What do you, what does that mean at a place like Cablevision to do that sort of work? Well, to start with, um, Cablevision started the whole uh, engagement of in big data four years ago and actually Kim Norris is sitting somewhere here, is the brain behind all this. I'm nothing but the, the dwarf sitting on many people's shoulders. Um, basically, uh, the, the key, key objective of my role is to uh, bring together the world, the science to the art, and the art to the science of data. And uh, we, we, we focus on the big, uh, specifically, and make a business out of the word big when it comes to data. And with big, I talk about the big number of sources of data that we've been collecting and make sure that we organize these sources and keep expanding them. Um, and then we focus on the big responsibility that comes with the data from governance to uh, privacy to security because with data comes big responsibility. Um, and the other thing is the big cost, managing all the costs that come with the data from tools, resources, scientists, analysts, and then the big opportunities that big data generate. So my role is to bring all this together, working with many different organizations within, within Cablevision. Uh, and the way we work together is we look at this in a four-component world. Starting from the bottom is the data infrastructure, basically all the EIT organizations and the technology groups. Then the second one is the logistics. How do you uh, monitor the data, how do you audit the data, how do you uh, make sure the privacy is there, how do you replicate the data, etc. Uh, then the third one is the analytics. How do you connect the dots of the data to make sense and create information out of that data to the sales organization, to the marketing group, to the operations group. And then the last thing is the visualization, which is very critical to a lot of companies when um, they spend a lot of money in data, but they overlook the visualization aspect. Uh, in, in other words, how do you tell the story in a smart, concise, simple way that people can make decisions based on that? So that's my role, basically, is putting all this together in a, in a business manner. Terrific. George, did, did you see, do you believe that big data is here in the television world? Did you see a point that, that you said, you know, life has changed, I've been doing this for a long time, and... and uh, Thanks a lot. Um, I definitely believe that uh, big data is here um, in the media and the advertising um, industry. I think that when we talk about big data, we need to peel the onion a little bit and just take a little bit of a dive. I think big data is not just about the volume of data in terms of transactions, but it's also about the granularity of the data. And we uh, work with Bill. He is one of our partners. And when I talk about the granularity of the data, I'm talking about the ability to measure tuning status on a second-by-second -second level. So we're down to that level of detail. And the robustness of the data allows us to connect it to other data sources, something that we can't do with our traditional services, uh, our traditional meter services. So working with other third-party partners, such as J.D. Power, such as uh, American Express, such as Kantar Retail, what we're now doing is introducing these integrated data sets into the media planning function of some of our agency clients. So from my perspective, it is beginning to change um, the way business is done in our industry. So, um, Ashley, I'll ask you, you're your work in a particular part of the television field where people can actually signal intent. Because most of the data that we collect is viewing data, and so the only intent that people are signaling is, what am I watching? As opposed to, I want something or I want to find it. Is that sort of a specialized 
culture in the ITV world where, where people are actually clicking? Are you, are you sort of off to the extreme or do you find your, yourself in the mainstream? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, it's interesting. All the conversations and public forums in which I participate and we talk about interactive television and we talk about addressable and this idea of having granular data specifically around the ecosystem of TV, we talk out of both sides of our mouth because the reality is that most dollars that advertisers invest are up funnel. They're about brand, right? And the interesting thing is when we talk about purchase intent, that is a brand level metric, right? That's not a performance driven metric by which we evaluate the ROI on media. And so interactive TV is an interesting construct because when you talk about interacting with something, a brand's intention of investing in that value add unit, like an interactive overlay, for example, or you know, a telescoping ad on cable vision, may not be because they want to thread the needle and get them closer to a transaction. They may actually want to just improve the performance of a funnel brand investment, right? So I think the problem is the in, because interactivity around television, specifically self-contained on the first screen, has not reached critical mass, we're still hedging investments by paying, advertisers are investing for performance to try and get closer to a transaction and push that person through the funnel. And they're also actually just trying to make their TV dollars work harder because they're investing so much in TV and will continue to do so. Got it. Uh, David, you've got a paper out there I, I, that I know that you've submitted that I read last night or tried to read last night about the impact of product placement on commercial audiences. I thought it was a very sort of interesting thing to try where you're, where you're trying to sort of tease out what happens when you're among a group of product placements to, in the commercials that, that are subsequent. Is this sort of analysis, could you have done that 20 years ago? Would, is, it, is the math has changed, or is it the data, or the processing? Yeah, you know, um, when we talk about big data, I've got kind of mixed feelings about the term. Um, a friend of mine kind of gave me the best example of kind of how the term gets used now, that we almost use the term big data like we use rocket science. You know, yes, there is actually, there is actual use of big data that we're talking about, and then there's kind of the everything that gets lumped under that umbrella. You know, so this project looking at product placement 20, 30 years ago, I'm not sure if it could have been done, but it's not because of the math behind it. The math is, you know, souped up linear regression on steroids. Um, but as far as... And we the, know they had steroids 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but as far as availability of data, I mean, this was work um, using um, the Cantor audience, the second-by-second second data. Um, you know, was that available 30 years ago? I don't think so. You know, it's, if we look, you know, the first work that I had done with that second-by-second second data was kind of um, taking aim at the notion of program ratings. That I'm not, you know, why are we pricing advertising a lot based on programs when what we really care about is the audience that we're able to reach with advertising. And, you know, the fact that now we can see second-by-second second, what are the components of an ad driving tune away, um, what are the components of programs that relate to that. Um, the mathematics behind it, you know, that's always been the same. The computational ability, um, processing power, that's changed significantly. I would say maybe, you know, mid-90s, late-90s is when the methodology kind of came into fashion. Um, but just the availability of data has changed the game as far as kind of the insights that we're able to derive. Michael, so when you, when you used to run programming at VH1, I'm sure you had ratings and, and things like that, but, but what, what, could you imagine like having to make decisions with you know, people running into your office saying, look what happened 32 seconds ago and we've got to change your dress or things like that? Can you? Yeah, I think um, um, you know, just, just a, like 20 seconds on my background, I used to run programming at VH1 and I now have a production company called Ish Entertainment. We produce digital video and TV video. We also have a company that is uh, called Iconic that is uh, developing uh, digital networks uh, across multiple digital platforms, including YouTube. So I come at this from a very wide uh, range of perspectives. Uh, none of them involve anything as sexy as, uh, what was it, linear, re linear regression on steroids? On steroids. Uh, I don't know what that means. Um, That's good. Keep it that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you know the research as recently as five years ago, compared to what it is now, was 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 primitive. Um, and I and you know we did get I think quarter hour research uh, and understood you know what that meant. And that gave us I think kind of the broadest sense of 
you know, is the show sticky? Are people continuing to watch it? Is it, it does the format work? Um, we also had some very basic uh, demographic analysis and understood what our audience was. But, you know, the central flaw with that data, and I think the central flaw with data in general, is that it tells, you know, it, it tells you what people want from the variety of options available to them, but they don't know what they want until you give it to them, right? And so it, it, it tends to uh, retard creativity. And, I, and as a now seller of programs selling to a number of cable networks, I find it um, occasionally stultifying the amount of data they now marshal on behalf of the decision making that they make. Uh, and as a result, I think from a creative point of view, and I think ultimately from a business point of view, uh, that does not benefit them. So I, I, that's a perfect transition to this. Sure, absolutely, George, you carte blanche. Um, I just want to pick up, it's not so important to know what happened 32 seconds ago in terms of the granularity of the data. I think in terms of understanding commercial audiences and the stickiness of commercial audiences, one of the major things that we've learned working with this granular data is that 75% 70, of commercial avoidance is due to media placement, and only 25% is due to the creative. And within that notion of media placement, it's you know the position in the pod, where the pod is in, in, in the programming. So it's those general learnings that we're able to extract from the granular data that I think helps us to move along. It's not what happened two seconds ago or five seconds ago, but it's the ability to really get more understanding as to what's going on. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think if I can go super macro for a second, I mean, the, the, the broadest trend here is a decline and a significant and ongoing and persistent decline in viewing of broadcast and cable television. Right, so the question is, what is big data's role in that? Is, uh, does big data care that traditional viewing and you know, at some point the bundle will break and will force an entirely new way in which people consume uh, video? In fact, it's already happening. So, so the question is, is does, do, do the other folks on this panel, are they concerned about that and is there a potential role that data can play in reversing so we're gonna, that? That's, that's actually one of the, the friend fro things that we're gonna cover. I want to talk a little bit about predicting audiences and recommending shows and movies because you, you, both, you both hit on that a little bit. Reed Hastings wrote something, and I recommend to anyone who's in this business to read it a, a couple of years ago in the future of Netflix. And in the context of sort of characterizing his company as a company that, that unbundles, he wrote, we are countered positioned against the hassles and complexities and frustration that embodies most MVPD relationships with their customers. And one of the keys to his positioning is the personalized ranking of content derived from analyzing terabytes of data from every recent click, page abandoned, page views. I remember this quotation when I came across an interview with some of their programmers who talked about the metadata to compare between shows and the hand tagging of content. Netflix has done an interesting thing. They, they started out using um, uh, very algorithmic approach to picking shows and to things like that, completely devoid of any, not, any sense of the content. Um, <clears throat> but they've switched and they're now, uh, one of the programmers was talking about that they're now tagging every single show about different aspects of content. So they've moved away from collaborative filtering and now much more of a content approach. And that, that seemed to be a pretty major shift from a company who, you know, here he's talking about personalized content and things like that. And it happened sort of quietly, and I'm curious, like, you know, do, do you use Netflix? Do you use their rankings? Do you, are you a, a follower of that? Uh, do I use their rankings? Yeah. No, do you use the recommendations? Do you find them? Yeah. And, and what do you, is, there, is, it sat, is the experience satisfactory? I don't have the same taste as my seven-year-old godson, mm -hmm. I can tell you that. Right. Um, That's kind of the question. I mean, there. Look, there's a guy in in California, Vincent Abruzze, who um, he has a company. I think it's called MTG, and he says for two thousand dollars, we'll read your script and tell you whether it's a uh, it's going to be a hit or not. 
So my, my point is that yeah. the Netflix is not ubiquitously automating everything and doing it on an algorithm, right? They still have a team. There is like human intervention because they realize that the algos will break, right? And there will be fail points. And so I think that's the key is that there's nothing foolproof. And I think the best description for a dear girlfriend of mine that, um, that was a consultant for REIT said, you know, we as an industry like assess him as some crazy sort of, you know, far right of the bell curve guy with Adler's and the shit that comes out of his mouth. But the reality is that he's just really smart and has a vision. And I think we have to give him credit that if he's willing to pivot and reevaluate his data strategy to better appeal to his audience and drive a larger subscriber base, I think that's just good business. I don't think that's necessarily second guessing whether or not big data works. No, I wasn't saying it. It's just such a radical shift that that was sort of interesting to me how quietly he went away from collaborative filtering to sort of a content filtering. And, you know, they make a big deal about these algorithms, but, you know, and everyone is, is talking about uh, House of Cards, but it didn't seem to me like you needed an algorithm to decide that a show that David Fincher is going to direct with Kevin Spacey that was already successful in Europe is going to be a hit. I mean, is that... Is that the stuff of algorithms? Go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, I think it's, you know, the, 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 the challenge where, we, where we're, I think we continue to have with big data is what we care about are the insights. You know, it's the, the, the method of how we get to the insights, you know, in some sense is almost less relevant. Like, you know, if, we, if Netflix knows we need to understand consumer preferences, well, we can use algorithms to do that if we can say here are the attributes of programming that matter, right? Is it the director? Is it the actor? Is it the genre? You know, those are attributes that we can code up and put into our algorithms. Um, but the algorithms are only as good as those attributes um, that we define. So, you know, Netflix is using human intervention. Pandora uses human intervention. And um, I Google. love that human intervention. That's a right, great. Yeah. Well, it's we, you know, the, any of these algorithms that we build because. We can't get people to read seven million ratings, right? You know, how could imagine you know using Pandora and trying to code up all of the songs in your catalog manually? Um, incredible amount of time and money that would have to be invested to do that. So algorithms are going to be able to get us part of the way there. I think one, you know part of the challenge for big data is going to be able to say, well, here let's get let's get as far as we can automatically. Let's let's automate what we can and then. Let's involve manual coders. I think I, remember, I read a piece in Wired um, f about Netflix, how they have film buffs or film students. Right. 800 people you know, watching movies and coding them yeah. up, you know, which, chase scene. And which would be a great job, except I'm not qualified to do it. Um, <laughs> but it's marrying what we get out of the automated insights, what we get out of the, whether it's the collaborative filtering-based models, the regression-based um, models, and being able to extract insights for that and provide some guidance uh, for manual coding. Bill, are the types of rank, personalized rankings and, and information that Netflix gathers and, and your data reveals, is that now being used by MVPDs to decide what channels to keep or how much, how much money to pay for different, different types of content? Um, are you a tool in that? I don't know how much it's being used to decide which channels to keep or how much to be paid, but I do know there's a lot that of is the discussion. Question. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion around how, who's looking at my programming, how many, how often are they there, and that kind of thing. So we, we do spend some time with that and, uh, and provide some of that in, insights, but I think it, it gets to your point is, it takes you only so far, and then it takes a human to then look at that data and say, okay, I've sifted it this far down the funnel, the rest of the way I have to actually look at with my own pair of eyes. And that, that's what, Paul, you were talking about, yep. the, the visualization layer. Right, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it a bit further. Actually, it is what I said earlier. It's science meeting art, and that's what really the benefits of big data. Um, we apply a lot of the science on the data sources and the collection and the storage and the analysis of these sources. For example, when we want to have a predictive model built through algorithms where I believe a lot of the art comes in, we need to depend on very legitimate sources of data. Could be reach data, frequency data, affinity data. And affinity could be based on frequency or it could be based on duration, uh, demographics data. And, and we, we apply the science individually to all these sources and then we start connecting them using the art to figure out how do we predict, how do we do network recommendations. Because for certain programmers, for example, prediction and recommendation is different than for brands. 
you use a lot more demographics, geographics, psychographics for brands to predict and to recommend networks. But for programmers, you need to use a lot of the reach and the frequency. And the more data you collect, the more you make better art. Because if a content is good, but the frequency is low, you may not get conversion. If the frequency is perfect, the reach is perfect, but the content is not good, and you measure that by second by second engagement, I mean, the, that, that's where the art comes in. So, um, yeah. But it, it sounds like in this case, and, and George, maybe you can help me out here, that, that smaller things can survive now because of the insights about the audience that we may start to pull out. I, I think with big data, it gives a chance for smaller networks, lower rated programs, a chance to survive because you can measure them. You know, in a world without big data, um, you know, these smaller networks were always operating under the, under the radar, so to speak. So I think it, um, it really shines a light, if you will, on, you know, good content, good programming, good networks that might otherwise not, not get measured. Um, I mean, that's actually really interesting uh, and I think a potentially positive uh, thing to hear. Um, I think my experience and having spent a lot of time, particularly in the YouTube space and, uh, and speaking to a lot of other uh, content creators in that space, they felt challenged by what's happening there because the pressure and the increasing amounts of data have tended to depress uh, CPMs, which I think have had a significantly negative impact on the ability for, for creators to create interesting content, right? You're Even no, I'm talking about digital video specifically. Um, that it's fantastic uh, for the aggregators and it's fantastic for the network, but it's not fantastic. It's it's very it, it's very challenging to create and build value around individual pieces of content. Even the word content itself, I think, is a value Commodity, destroyer. Commodification. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. I I think there are. I mean, I think there's sort of two gross uh, incongruences here. One is that. One of the biggest challenges with big data and sort of realizing the value of it is that it has, in order for big data to be more than just data, it has to be actionable, right? And so if you have insights and you actually don't necessarily have the operational workflow, the business process, in media, it'd be a constant comms business model, right? To be able to actually react and deploy media or develop creative and optimize against it. And that's really cost intensive. So you're paying for the fire hose of data, you're paying for all the, the operational costs to actually leverage the data and mine it and use it and analyze it. And then with what you do with it afterwards is just sort of an incremental cost. I think that's the first challenge. The second challenge is that it's the conundrum of programming, right? Because what you do to please an audience and the insights you derive from their viewing behavior does not necessarily positively move your P&L from an advertising perspective. When we talk about things like adjacency and context mattering and you know the really sick twisted stuff that people watch on, on YouTube is not necessarily what a program is gonna deploy, but the guys driving the biggest audiences on YouTube, I mean, they're still driving big audiences, right? And I, and I just wanna, Michael, to your point specifically, I actually do think that data is disrupting because um, that is using data as a business lever, not using data as a business, as a, as a lever for negotiation, not a lever for driving value. Because what we see in the media industry right now is fundamentally as dollars are being aggregated on spend for TV buyers now moving video dollars, they're having sticker shock when it comes to buying video because one, there's not liquidity in the marketplace. And two, when we add the layer of data and we make it more targetable and addressable, the CPMs go through the roof and they have sticker shock. So I think it's, you know, data is your friend or your foe, depending on what side of the table you're sitting on in a business conversation. I think, I think if I could just jump, your point is exactly right, that, that the, the holy shit stuff that people really wanna watch never can't make it through this filter, right? And I think uh, the, the situation on the ground is, especially in digital, is that mostly what we're doing now is, is coming up with ideas and tailoring programming concepts to see if an advertiser might want to fund it. And that's fundamentally uninteresting from a creative point of view and yields things that viewers don't want to see and ultimately doesn't benefit the advertiser. But we're, we're trapped in that yeah, so vortex right now. So, so Seth, just to follow up on that, I mean, a lot of the conversation is about, you know, the, the quality of the content, what's going to attract the audience. I mean, there is the potential that big data does give us those insights of who are these people and for advertisers, 
how valuable are different people? I mean, the, the big movement within marketing toward the, this notion of customer centricity. Not all of my customers are created equally. You know, the, the content that's attracting the more valuable viewers, you know, like I said, that sticker shock, well, that's what's going to contribute to that premium. So as you said, it is going to depend on which side you're on, but what data is giving us are those more granular insights. But the ideas themselves, uh, I mean, the notion of target your customers appropriately linked to their value. I mean, the casinos do that, the hotels do that, the airlines do that. Those core notions have been around for a while. It's just we're able to be much more precise with the marketing now than we used to be. I'll tell you the benefits, big data, to Cablevision. For example, we, we've taken all that technology and the art, and we created a digital play on television. Literally now, we give our clients the ability to come to us and have a complete digital experience of buying impressions, not, not any more spots and dots, or in addition to spots and dots, you can come and buy impressions based. All that because of big data. Tell us the audience, we can create the audience for you through our audience discovery and segmentation product. We can quickly build the number of impressions on any network, including long tail, like George was saying. Because of big data now, we can lump in any type of network in long tail or prime time or mid-tier in, in any unbiased manner. We don't make differentiation when you put an impression because you're reaching the audience. We run addressable technology to reach these households, again, using big data. We monitor, are we reaching these segments? Are we reaching it based on what we committed to the client? And then we do a lot of insights that we weren't able to do before with the traditional models. So that's, that's the benefits of big Terrific. data. Let, let's, let's switch to another topic, and this is fascinating. We can go on with this. So I, I want to talk a little about churn. Because you know there is a sort of existential struggle in the content business about whether content is monetized by subscription fees or by advertising fees. And over the last 10, 10 years or so, subscription fees have way increased. It used to be 10 years ago, the total advertising dollars and total subscription dollars were about the same. Now subscription is much larger. And when subscription is much larger, it means that turn is the big question. Um, Turn is the question for the MVPDs, it's for Netflix and for Hulu and things like that. I'm going to start at Bill. You build products ostensibly originally focused for advertisers like Massive Data and Ad Aim Profiling. Can't those things also be used to find people who might churn? We actually did build a churn predictive model, and, and we put that out, and, and a couple of our clients have actually used it. And what they're doing is they're finding which, which um, uh, kind of types of, of um, users are likely to churn out and, to, and at what period of time. So it, uh, it's a little bit focused on what particular programs they're watching, but it's also, it really takes a hard look at how much time they're spending and, and what their packaging is that they, that they have. So we're seeing a lot of churning from not only out of the cable uh, system directly, but also different packaging that they, that they have. Give me an example. Um, we saw, we were able to see with different uh, uh, program options with HBO, for example, uh, at the end of certain seasons, we see a drop off in some cases. So we were able to predict which, one of the, which households were doing that. David, your um, one time teacher and now colleague, uh, Professor Fader, has always told me that heterogeneity, you know, understanding the differences in audiences is key to understanding fundamental things like churn. I explain that to us. Sure, so, you know, a lot of marketing, you know, we relies heavily on demographics. And in some cases, that, that's sometimes the best that we had. Um, but in most cases today, you know, demographics are somewhat redundant. The best predictor of what people are going to be doing is what they've done in the past. Um, and the notion of you know, unobserved heterogeneity is the technical term for it, but it's that we know that people are different. You know, con um, consumer segments, that's out of sheer convenience, just let's lump people into buckets. But we know that all people are different from each other, so let's recognize that when we're doing our analysis that because people are different, they have di different tendencies to stick around, um, some are more likely to churn than others, and if we can find indicators based on what they've done in the past, the programs that they're watching, the packages that they're subscribing to, um, those are going to give us um, di some differentiation among uh, those different churn tendencies. 
Um, but the real intent of incorporating heterogeneity into any analysis um, is to be able to take action on it. So in some, you know, you're going to have some consumers who are more valuable than others. Some subscribers are more valuable um, than others. If I'm a, I'm a Netflix subscriber, I've been a Netflix subscriber for you know, 10 years or so, um, how likely is it that I'm going to churn next month? Not very likely, and Reed Hastings doesn't have to invest a whole lot in keeping me as a customer. You know, someone who just signed up, or a subscriber for HBO who watches Boardwalk Empire and the season's ending. All right, HBO has to worry about that person dropping out. So Paul, if I, if I hire, you got a new job tomorrow and you're um, in charge of churn prevention at, you know, Cable Town. Um, do you, do you call up Professor Schweidel? Do you get bills modeled? Do you go build something yourself? You're a, how, how do you start? Well, I'm on the ad business side, so uh, if I wear my previous roles hat, I, I would look at it as a typical business problem that big data can help solve. And, and the business problem, the way I would approach it to solve it is, first of all, I would quantify and qualify the problem of churn itself. Why is it happening and how big is it? Is it geographic? Is it seasonal? Is it price related, economic? Or is it content related? So once I define the problem, I would probably design a best solution that I can address it. Then I would implement the solution and then I would measure the solution and then I would refine it. And all these five functions, I doubt any company would have the ability to do all these five functions internally themselves. They may have some resources that can build some of these functions, others resources, they will have to go hire outside. Definitely they would call on experts like David and maybe partner with big companies and small innovative startups. But I would do a combination of everything as long as I follow the five uh, milestone approach of defining the problem all the way to refining it. Michael, I'm gonna ask you a question. There was a, a big bruising battle between CBS and Time Warner recently over uh, carrying CBS. And and the, the end result for, for most people was that CBS lost 300,000 subscribers. They may have lost that anyway, but they blamed it on this, on this battle of taking CBS off the air. And so, so good programming becomes the key to retaining <coughs> customers. Do you think we'll see more things like NFL Sunday Ticket where you'll have exclusive properties that are so valuable in terms of gaining or, or retaining customers that that'll change that model, you'll build something just for Comcast or just for Time Warner? Or do you think, will, will that become the net result of the sort of bidding up process for customers? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a tough question to completely unbundle, but I think um, clearly what's happening is that um, on the broadcast side, uh, value is accruing to events and to rights. Uh, sports rights obviously are becoming more and more valuable. Uh, more and more obscure sports rights are suddenly mattering. Uh, I'm a big soccer fan, so I'm amazed by the amount of soccer that's now available on multiple networks. I think there are five different soccer networks at this point. Uh, cricket rights are getting bought up. Pretty much everything is being kind of strip mined. Uh, and then on the flip side, live events as being one of the few real ways to... Uh, uh, the Sound of Music, obviously, one of the few real ways to aggregate an audience. But yes, I think that the the vision of the unbundled future is hyper a la carte, in which people buy exactly what they want. Um, and the real question is, what does that mean for a network? I mean, CBS is interesting in that regard because it's the most old school network in terms of how it's conceived. I mean, it's basically quite explicitly conceived as a network from 20 years ago, and that's in fact one of the reasons it's succeeding. And I don't really have the answer for that. So um, we, we have about 15 minutes left, so I'm gonna ask everyone for faster answers for these things, and I'll make the intros shorter. I, I, I've always said that everything that ails TV today is about fragmentation, and that's fragmentation of, of viewership, fragmentation of the data that represents viewers, because categories like 18 to 45 were a lot of people, categories like men who drive Volvos who are 26 years old are small people and the big generator of value in television is reach. And so fra as fragmentation continues and, and the fragmentation related to uh, the types of viewing, the distribution types and things like that, how does all of this data, how do you do media planning in a world like that? How, how do, what, what happens to that? Is it, is it fracking? Is it pulling together lots of little things, George? Is that is that how, how media planning is going to look? Well, I think the, uh, 
the transition that's happening in media planning is going from the use of age sex demographics that have always been used as surrogates for product interest to audience buying. And with the availability of big data, you're able to aggregate audiences that advertisers are interested in and understand the programming and which media placement is best suited to reach that particular audience. So that's a lot of the work that we're involved with uh, today. And uh, one, ex one other example we can cite, I talked earlier about the ability to, uh, that big data gives us to connect um, other databases. We're actually using TV attributes, heaviness of television usage, to inform digital ad placement. So if you think about the idea, there's a diminishing return to television investment, you get your reach, and after that it's all about frequency and there's that diminishing return. Well now we have the ability to help identify light viewers of television where an advertiser's dollar might better be spent with a digital placement online. Got it. One of the big users of um, this more targeted approach was the political, political advertising bill. And, and you know we heard about the optimizer in the 2012 presidential election where Obama was able to, I think you guys generated the numbers, Obama was able to spend significantly less finding viewers because they did this matching between, using Epsilon between set-top box data gathered and, and, uh, and information about their internal database. How, see, how does that work? Give us a... An so they used a number of different sources. We were one of them. And um, the, what we did was anonymously uh, find the households that met with certain criteria that they passed to us. So then they could take the, ad, the, the usage data or the usage information for um, viewership and match it up against the attributes that they were looking for. And what it gave them was a way to, to create a schedule that actually cost them less money but reached the audience that they were most interested in. So, you know, the, when, when I'm asked about this frequently, I say, well, the best use case ever is, is that the candidate won. So now what's happening is that we're seeing the team from, from the Obama campaign has now sort of spread out. They've, they've started a dozen or so companies, and every one of them is interested in rebuilding the same thing. So we're going we're gonna to see a little more of that in the next year, and then I think in 2016 you're just going to see an explosion of uses of data for, for finding the best audience they can. Now the flip side of that is the inventory owners are going to start looking at the same thing. They're going to try to figure out and anticipate where that inventory that, right. that was underpriced in 2012, how are they going to increase the so, prices for so it in will 2016? So will we have an efficient market by 2016 is the question. That's doubtful. <laughs> Paul, with targeting, do you still need to do media planning? Can't you just find the audience? Who, who? Uh, well, first you've got to find the audience, and you definitely need to do planning First of all, to figure out where to reach the audience and by how much. And planning is absolutely a critical function because if you're going to reach them with impressions, you want to figure out where do you apply the impressions and how deep do you go, how wide do you go from a network's perspective. Uh, if there's fragmentation from a planning perspective, you're going to figure out what mediums and when do you target these mediums to reach the same target. And uh, even more important is from an internal function, inventory optimization is, is dependent on network planning and the planning function in general because I want to apply the most efficiency and the best inventory that I have uh, to, to, the, uh, to the media, to, to, to the purchase. Quickly. Yeah, I think just to, to answer your question, I mean, uh, since I'm in both linear and digital, digital to me isn't really an adjacency business. It's, it's actually, you know, on YouTube, it, you know, I bought something on room and board, I get a lot of room and board ads no matter what I'm watching. And so that fund is fundamentally disruptive to media planning in general and makes it very difficult to establish any value for any content you're creating because people are buying the audience, not the content. So we can go a little bit to the realm of philosophical. And you know, if you sort of exclude weather and particle physics and things like that, a lot of the big data that we see is kind of about human beings, right? It's human data. And a lot of what, what I sort of think about when I see all of the science experiments that people are doing is we're reverse engineering the human response system. We're saying, what can we put out there that get people to respond in different ways? And that's a very different way of thinking about knowledge and thinking about human behavior than we had for thousands of years. You know, in, 
you know, I always like, uh, I love aphorisms. And aphorisms was one of the ways that we used to represent human behavior. One, you know, one of my favorite is um, Tacitus, who's a great statesman, other than having helped burn the temple in Jerusalem. And he said, men are more often ready to repay an injury than a benefit because gratitude is a burden and revenge is a pleasure. So he's not only telling you how people behave, but he's telling you why, why that is. But today, we seem to get things that are just reaction. You know, we have um, folks like Frank Luntz who transform oil drilling into energy exploration and, and estate taxes into death taxes because of how we respond. Can you, does that work? In other words, Ashley, you made an, said an interesting point to me that, that, that if you don't understand it, if you can't explain it, it's hard to implement it. Well, Hemingway's quote that I have on my kitchen wall is don't mistake action for, or motion for action, right? So I think that fundamentally, we're talking about trying to, we're talking about re-engineering an industry and uh, reallocating dollars and spend on fundamentally a business model that is not efficient, that is oligopolistic in nature, and where 70% of the dollars move in the second quarter. And everything we talk about digital right now Fundamentally, that's what's interesting to me is where I see the shift of power in digital is absolutely to align more with television. So it's a retrenchment and actually 10 steps back for the sake of 10 steps forward because there's a huge talent gap, the skills don't exist, the data really isn't actionable yet, and at the end of the day, the power lies within TV today. And so forgive the sports analogy because I'm, um, I'm an athlete and one of my team members is going to smile, but I call it drafting. Right? You do this in racing. You tail somebody, you let them take the headwind, and then you downshift and you pass them. And I would suggest that for digital in particular, that is where you need to be right now to survive. You draft off of TV, right? Align yourself around TV and the dollars that move there to make TV ROI perform better. And then eventually you'll be able to surpass it when the eventuality of unbundling other things happen where people actually take control and the audiences are empowered, but we're not there yet. So I think that we are beholden to legacy business models that unfortunately move a lot of dollars and there are no incentives to change them. There's a, I, 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 there's a professor, David Gallinson from Harvard. He does a very interesting study. He, he looks at how expensive paintings are whether the, the painters who painted them, their very early works are expensive or their late works. And he finds it's basically a U. People, some people, their early stuff, like a Picasso, is way, way more valuable. And some people, like a Van Gogh, it, it, that's their, their, you know, when they're painting for 40 years, that's when value is created. And he sort of divides it into, there are things that are revolutionary and are popular immediately. And there are things that are revolutionary that take a long time, both for the artist to build and for the audience to appreciate them. You know, some, I remember someone pointed out to me, Fleetwood Mac's Tusk album, for anyone who's listened to music in the 1970s, was their 27th album. Does all this data, do we lose that, that second half, the other half of the U, by responding to things so quickly? Do we, do we just lose those things that take time to develop? Or is there a way of engineering our models to, to work that way? Well, I mean, that's heavy stuff. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I was sensing you wanted me to pick up the gauntlet here. Go for uh, it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I think I think we're in an increasingly trigger happy incident response society. Um, my son uh, is a big Vine user, but he finds it too slow, so he <laughs> he'll watch the first two seconds of a Vine and then watch the next Vine. Um, but I think all all cultural phenomena. Uh, create, uh, you know, inverse reactions. And if you, you know, there was a great article in The Guardian a couple weeks ago about uh, the explosion in thousand-plus page novels, um, the rise of highly complex narrative television, um, and, you know, the increase in, in DIY, slow food. I mean, there, there, there's a huge, ex the, the return of long-playing records. Um, there, there's a, a fantastic kind of counter-trend that has arisen uh, in response to, I think, you know, sort of a hyper-caffeinated, kind of coked out, uh, instant satisfaction culture um, that makes me sort of fairly optimistic. And I think, uh, so I don't, I don't think it's, you know, it's time for everyone to get parental and freak out right now. Any, do we have any questions? Do we have a minute for? Hi, 
stand, stand up. Um, so I, I'm always curious. I'm always telling the team that uh, that TV doesn't necessarily have a data problem, right? It has a delivery problem. And so, you know, when the gentleman from Cablevision is talking about addressability, I think that's where the data really comes in and makes that powerful, right? Without the delivery, all that data doesn't really matter. So, what's your perspective on that? How does that affect the long tail of cable? Um, and then, where do you see programmatic TV jumping into this? Uh, it's three more panels you've just invented, Matthew. Does anyone want to? Well, I, I'd actually be really interested. So I think, um, oh, I have one, sorry, Michael. Um, so I think it goes back to incongruencies, right? It's the planning and buying and the actual, the delivery or the insertion. So TV may be more actionable because of data necessarily, but the legacy infrastructure doesn't afford real, real-time decision-making and insertion or optimization, right? So the idea of optimization doesn't exist in real-time in TV. And that's why programmatic becomes really interesting. So the retrenchment that I referred to in television um, in digital, rather, is much, very much so enabled, reinforced, and accelerated by programmatic. Because programmatic pulls in big data sets, allows them to be married, first, third, and other behavioral data sets, right? Allows them to be married, and allows digital media to be bought side by side beside television, right? And additionally, OCR and BCE are like further reinforcing that, and that's where the dollars are moving. So I think doubling down on programmatic TV is a wise decision. Paul, do you want to get in the last word on that? Yeah. I. I mean, data proved for us that uh, programmatic is a great option, and we're we're going there as as an as a player and a, as an industry as well. Uh, we we use the data heavily to refine the processes. Uh, first of all, before the technology gets refined, but there are players who we're working with today uh, who enable us to do addressability and they enable us to do optimization, and they're doing a great job there. Um, I think the next step is eventually going to be the programmatic, and it's going to start step by step. It's going to be a manual programmatic aspect, and then it's going to get better and better, and people are going to invest when they see the ROI that is uh, beneficial to their company to invest in. Listen, thank you very much. Let's have a hand for this a terrific, terrific panel. Really great. Uh... Guys, you were great. Spectacular. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Paul, that was fantastic. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Perfect. B-B-O-T.